0: Well, good evening, welcome. This evening we are continuing our, our series of studies through the Bible and the New Testament in particular. We are tonight in the 22nd book of the New Testament, which is the book of Second Peter. So if you don't mind, let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll dig into this text. Father God, I thank you for the time that we have. I thank you for your word and our opportunity to study it. And I pray, Lord, that as we Discuss this book tonight, that your Holy Spirit would be our helper, our teacher, and our guide. That you would open the eyes of both our mind, but also of our hearts, our understanding, that we might receive your word deep inside of us, Lord, because that's when it begins to really begin to change us and bring us into conformity to your will. Give us that grace, we pray this evening in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well the book of Second Peter, the letter of Second Peter more accurately um, attests in its opening to have been written by the Apostle Peter verse 1, chapter 1, Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now you may be wondering why do I take the time to comment on such an obvious statement because uh, it is probably, the book of Second Peter is probably the most Um, challenged of all the writings of the New Testament or even the Old Testament in terms of it actually being an authentic letter from the Apostle. In fact, uh, critics have noted, uh, particularly over the last century, but even going all the way back to people like Martin Luther and Calvin who challenged and questioned its authenticity uh, back in the 15th century... Um, noting the fact that it, it, there's a significant difference in the style of writing between 1 Peter and, and 2 Peter. 1 Peter is a very eloquently written, very well polished very really a high level of literature and discourse whereas 2 Peter is, is much more um, how can I say, it's, it's more pedestrian. It's, it's written uh, in, a, in a style that is rather in a hurry and, and very verbose not terribly uh, tightly crafted as a piece of literature. Uh, in part this probably is explained by the fact that it was most likely written by Peter when he was in prison in Rome he is awaiting execution and he doesn't have the assistance of Silas who had been his uh, basically his editor and co-writer of the first letter. So just the absence of the literary skills of Silas may in fact Uh, explain the difference between the levels of sophistication between the two letters, Um, we can actually say the same kinds of things about some of Paul's letters as well. So I don't know that's really such a compelling argument to say that Peter didn't write it Secondly, he he makes reference to Peter's, or Paul's letters, and he refers to them as Scripture. And critics many times have said well, you know, nobody considered Paul's letters to be Scripture until at least the second or third century of the church's history, and therefore it was obviously written at that later date. But that's not necessarily true either. Then again, that's based upon an assumption and uh, I'll explain why that doesn't hold much water anymore today as an argument. But lastly... Uh, we know that 2 Peter didn't, was not nearly as widely circulated as the letter of 1 Peter. In fact, one of the ways that when they decided what is going to be put into the what we call the canon of Scripture uh, from, from the Latin word cane, which means a, a rule, what is going to be included into the authorized books of the New Testament for the church to study doctrine and faith... Um, they would look at the issue of how widely distributed was the letter, how widely used was it by the churches and those which were used a lot and were relied upon for doctrine and guidance were considered to have greater uh, historicity and value uh, as one of the three ways in which they measured whether something should be in the Scripture. Well, It certainly didn't have as wide a circulation, but it's interesting because it's rather recently that manuscripts, ancient manuscripts were discovered um, and uh, dating from the early part of the second century. We're talking about the early 100s which is really about as old as many of the New Testament letters that we have today. Uh, in fact, one scholar has gone on to show that over 22 different allusions to Second Peter are included in the writing of the early church fathers, which was another argument saying, well, the church fathers didn't quote from Second Peter, and yet he's documented that there are actually over 22 different allusions by church fathers, like people like Origen, Tertullian, and so forth, who referenced or were speaking about the things that Peter commented on in his second letter. So there are a number of these kind of arguments and if you're really interested in digging into the, the fuller document you might go to a site called Bible.org. They've got a great, great balanced presentation on the topic for those of you who are so inclined. Just look up their, their uh, discussion on 2 Peter. But since there are probably three of you in the room who will do that I won't, I won't belabor that point. But the question we would come up with is, well then how did this end up being included within the biblical canon and considered to be part of the uh, divinely given scriptures? Well, the first thing was its content. Uh, despite what anybody was saying, whether they questioned Peter wrote it or not, the point was that what it says is valuable and it's, it's pretty powerful. And you, you can't read Second Peter without being gripped by the power of its message. And that's something that was recognized from earliest times so that it's interesting because we find that uh, the early church was very, very fastidious about identifying uh, who was the actual writer and whether they were historically supportable. So it was that content first and foremost that people, even when there was a question, didn't want to set it aside because they said the message is important. Uh, Secondly, we have what's called the internal testimony. In other words, what does it say about itself? And that's where verse 16 of chapter 1 is a pretty powerful statement since the writer who uh, Peter claims to have been an eyewitness of the transfiguration. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You remember the transfiguration of Christ where Peter, John, and James go up into into the mountain, which would have been uh, Mount, uh, Mount Hermon. In, in Israel, they went up with Jesus into the mount, and he was transfigured, literally taken up, and he appeared to them in his glory, glorified body, with uh, with Elijah and and uh, Moses on either side of him. And so, uh, Peter, the writer makes reference to being an eyewitness. To this he says at that moment. He says, "For he received honor and glory from God the Father." When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So that uh, essentially he's saying the same thing that John says in the opening of his first letter when he said, The word of God that we've seen, we've heard, that our hands have handled talking about Jesus being a physical representation or or literally being uh, in their presence. Uh, So that testimony, of course, helps to substantiate the authenticity of the letter. But thirdly, uh, and this is probably kind of a wonk piece of information, but I throw it out anyway because it's really quite significant. Um, When we compare 1 Peter with 2 Peter, there are over 153 words that are shared in both letters now you may say so what well the point is that doesn't happen very often in fact there are more shared words before between those letters than there are in any of paul's letters so there's only about 364 uh, words in in the entirety of these books and yet they have a significant percentage almost half of the words are the same in other words we have the same vocabulary. And I I would bet you that if you were to take three of my sermons over the last 20 years, you would probably find that I tend to use the same six words over and over again. So, you know, there's a kind of a shared vocabulary, there's a way of saying things. In fact, one of the guys one time said, do you ever realize how many times you use the word dynamic? so I stopped using it for a couple of years because I thought I probably exhausted all my my opportunities and I'll have to start paying a royalty to use it anymore but we do that, you and I do that. We, we we have certain phrases and words and means of expression that are common to us when we communicate, and there is that commonality. The difference is is first Peter is very eloquently written and sophisticated, second Peter is much rougher, but again, I think the context in which it's being composed uh, says a lot. Uh, behind all of that. Why would that be difference? But the fourth thing that I would say is, uh, aside from just the content, the internal testimony, the shared vocabulary, it's the scrutiny that the letter has been under. And I think this helps explain a lot because as I said before, the early church was really quick to repudiate anything that was, we called, pseudo-apostolic. In other words, it claimed to be written by one of the apostles but wasn't actually. And in fact we know especially later on in the 3rd and 4th century there were a number of these documents which make up the Gnostic Gospels and really kind of pro- create the pulp and grist behind the Da Vinci Code and uh, Holy Blood Holy Grail and all these kind of uh, uh, writings that in you know, a decade ago were really being pushed as being the true Gospel and so forth. Well these are 3rd and 4th century compositions that were claimed to have been written by James or Jude or by many of them by Peter we know that they weren't because the, the style of Greek is much later than New Testament times. Uh, even the, the t- when you compare the stories, they don't, they're just not of the same nature. In fact, uh, the, uh, the, the Gospel of Peter talks about Jesus uh, getting in trouble because his classmates saw him sitting by the creek making little birds, uh, little mud bird figures. And they reported him to the rabbi because he's making idols. And so the rabbi rushes down to confront this sin. Of this five-year-old Jesus making uh, clay birds, and to prove that he ha- he wasn't an idolater, he lifted it up in his hand. He breathed on it; it became a living bird and flew flew away. Just the very nature of that story doesn't bear any resemblance to what you read about Jesus in the Gospels. And and that's the nature of a lot of these kind of things that uh, were repudiated. In fact, when it comes to Peter, there were a lot of them. There was called the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Peter, the Letters of Peter to Philip. All of those were rejected as being fraudulent by the early church. But they never rejected Second Peter because even though at that time they might have felt, well, we don't have enough evidence at a later date to really say for sure, it's just again, when we look back on the content, we look at the testimony, we look at this the vocabulary it's used, it, it, you know it's, it's got that ring of truth to it. and so they held on to it, even though it was one of the last of the letters, along with Hebrews and Jude and, and James, uh, surprisingly to many people, to actually be included. In, in the New Testament ca- canon. It didn't happen until about the fourth century where they were officially recognized universally as being part of the biblical canon. So the question becomes, if this is actually written by Peter, we would say then what's the when and where behind this? Well, according to tradition, strong, strong tradition, Peter was crucified upside down in the city of Rome sometime between 64 and 68 A.D., and this was under we talked about before about the Neronian persecution. Second Timothy, Paul is we, we talked about his execution by Nero by decapitation, and of course Peter in First Peter we talked about last week about his crucifixion as well. So we put it in that time frame under the Neronian persecution. You recall that I said it was the first official. Uh, Roman government sanctioned universal persecution against Christians. The the first of ten that would come over the next 200 years. And it was therefore assumed to have been written probably very early on in this period from the city of Rome and that really does help explain what we find in the letter itself. But before I go there, who is he writing to? Well, in chapter 3 verse 1 he makes this statement, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. So, his second letter, referring back to the first letter, and we talked about last week, who was the first letter sent to? Well, as we can see on the map it 's that part of Asia Minor, which today is actually modern day Turkey. You see at the top Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, all of these regions which were really at that time were, were where the Christianity was exploding and, and the growth was really significant. As a consequence it was creating a great deal of social disorder and chaos because essentially you had a whole religious system which was linked with the political system and the economic system and, and, and suddenly Christianity comes in and undercuts the polyeth- polytheistic idolatrous foundation that, those, that the authority of everything in this society rested on. And so Christianity was viewed as being a very disruptive element, and so as it began to spread, especially amongst the poor and the slaves, uh, it began to create real stresses within those communities, and that's why we talked about in 1 Peter that Peter addresses the issue of widespread persecution. Christians are coming under a lot of persecution prior to the Neronian persecution, but now this is more specific we know it's coming against uh, the church as a whole. And it's interesting because Paul does not, or Peter doesn't speak to the issue of suffering in the second letter. He speaks to something more concerning, I think, to him at that point. Well, what he is basically saying, or way I would describe the letter is, it's kind of like Peter's last will and testament. I mean, think about it. You're in prison. You know that your execution is a surety. You're going to die. And you're looking... Out over the church from a, from a uh, you know, literally a figurative sense. You're looking at this church. Paul has been executed, so that the two key leaders of the Christian movement are about to be removed from the scene. And the concern begins to shift to what is going to be the future of the church. And what Peter, as well as Paul, were constantly concerned with was the presence of false teachers. In fact, uh, Peter makes a statement. He says in chapter 2 verse 1, there will be false teachers, and he goes on to say who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Interesting way of phrasing that. They'll bring destructive heresies. In other words, these are a heresy literally means something that causes a division. It's a cutting in other words, so when we talk about heresies, we immediately think, well, it's a false teaching, but that's what false teaching does. It divides the church. And he says these are, these are destruction. Dividing the church is the most destructive thing that can happen to it. And he says they will secretly introduce these. In other words, the idea is that it'll be subtle distortions. In other words, uh, it, when a, a Korean Airline uh, 007 uh, was shot down by the Soviets and I think it was 1973, uh, they had taken off uh, from uh, Alaska flying to Korea and they had made a, a, a one-digit error in the setting of the, uh, of the uh, compass And as a result, in their navigation, they just simply parted from the true route a little bit. By the time they got over uh, Russia, they were hundreds of miles into Russian airspace. And for a whole lot of really sad reasons, uh, the the, uh, general in charge of that particular sector decided to shoot it down and killing all on board. But it's always been kind of this notable thing to say here, they were only off by one degree, but as one degree extrapolates out over a great distance, it becomes a significant difference. And that's why with, you know, Paul was always given the exhortation and went to Timothy, he said, make sure that you entrust the message to men who will maintain the form of sound doctrine. In other words, they will continue to communicate the message as it was given from the beginning. The challenge even today is that as we study the scriptures is to try to be as true to the meaning as we possibly can get. In other words, it's not the idea of each generation deciding what is socially acceptable interpretation for the time in which we live. So that we see this historically, uh, not just here but everywhere throughout history where people have looked and saying, well you know times change and this would be awkward to take this literally so why don't we interpret it this way or why don't we just kind of not include that. I remember one translation, that modern translation, which actually on whole I really do like quite a bit, but I'm not going to mention it. But he, when he came to the Paul talking about uh, in Corinthians about speaking in tongues, his notation was, well, this was obviously a slip of the pen. I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> but but basically rather than just simply saying, let's tackle this straight on and see how we can address it, he just basically says, we don't really need to think about that anymore, let's not pay attention to that. Uh, reminds me of the uh, Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But the point is that the challenge for us as followers of Jesus and students of Scripture is that we really kind of take it straight on and we try to understand what does it mean? What, how do we apply the Scriptures literally today, not how do we massage the Scriptures so that we, don't ha- we can avoid social conflicts? And we see it with some significant issues in the day and age in which we live. I think things like we talk about same-sex marriage, the, the, the temptation for many that I find that some yield to is the simply saying, well, Paul really probably didn't mean that or Moses didn't really mean that or this doesn't really mean that and therefore it's really okay. And so we, you find people writing things saying, well, what, what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was was a, was a, a failure to be hospitable to strangers, you know, and it's like, really? I mean, I don't, you laugh, but I mean, I, I've had to have this conversation with people who who were really desperately trying to convince me that it was bad manners that God caused them to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I know that's not true because I, I'm still walking. Uh, you know, bad manners were that something irritating to God. I would have been toast a long time ago. Uh, if you don't believe me, just ask my wife. So it's just like, it's, it's amazing to see this sometimes. Sometimes I have to admit, I just kind of get, get uh, puzzled. But it's, it, there's, a, there's a, a tendency, I think a very human tendency, not to want to have to really kind of grab a scripture by the lapels and look it straight in the face and say, I need to understand what this means to me today. And uh, because when you do that, you find yourself challenged uh, in the kind of ways that lead to a deeper walk with God. It becomes harder and harder to avoid it. But it's one of the simple things I've said to people many times is I really believe that God wanted us to take his word seriously. I mean, I really think he wants us to take his word seriously. And he doesn't want us playing fast and loose with it. Or as Peter goes on to say, give it our own private interpretation. He goes on in chapter he goes on in the chapter one to say, that's not allowable. God does not wink at private interpretations. He wants us to understand it. Does that mean that sometimes we misread it or come up with the wrong conclusions? Well, He even talks about that. So we'll get to that a little further on. Of course we can make all sorts of mistakes or not understand things deeply enough and we can use deeper instruction and clarification. Uh, But at the same time, that's a lot different than not taking it seriously. So Anyway, he he warns against this and he says about these false teachers even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Denying the sovereign Lord. What what does that really imply? It it implies an unwillingness to accept God's will for your life. That I'm not willing to accept God's will for my life. I'm going to offer an interpretation that, that is more in keeping with what I want. And so there is commonly this, this view, even especially in our day and age, well, God really doesn't care about the specifics. Um, but if you call him sovereign, that means he cares about the specifics. He cares about the details. I mean, we're talking about the God who created the micro universe with so much detail and precision that we can't even grasp or comprehend it. And you see this expression of God in his creation and then to turn around and say, but he doesn't really care about the details. He really cares about the details. And I'm really thankful for that because there are times when I look at my life and go, God, are you you still home? Are you still driving this life? Because I don't get the dynamics that are going on here. But I know that you do sweat the details. I do know that there's nothing that can come into my life that hasn't been allowed to be there unless you you gave it permission. And there's lots of those kind of things that you and me, we don't like, we don't want. If we could will it, it would be different. But by faith, we understand that God knows what He's doing. And He hasn't just simply left certain things out there to figure themselves out. I am not a victim of circumstance. I don't live in a world of serendipity. You know what that word means. It just means all sorts of quirky things happen. No, I I am a child of God who he says has been predestined by God. He has a predestined plan. Now, if you want to explore that further, then you have to come on Sunday when I deal with that in detail. But uh, Because I'm just going to leave you hanging there. (laughs) Because I can. Anyway, um, but he goes, But it's important, he says, that the, there's this repeated emphasis through this letter about clinging to the truth and not allowing our faith to be undermined by teachings that aren't according to that truth, that are essentially unbiblical. In fact, in, in verse 12, he says, for example, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you have, you now have. Or again in verse 2 of chapter 2 he says, many will follow their shameful ways, that is the false teachers and will bring the way of re- the truth into disrepute. In other words, how do you bring the truth into disrepute? By saying you believe it but you have permission to live contrary to it. It brings the truth into disrepute where the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference and uh, and, and essentially that's what's really troubling about our own day and age is that when we talk about things like marriage and divorce and so forth, the divorce rate amongst Christians, evangelical, Bible-believing, uh, Christ-professing Christians is the same as the secular world. You know, when we talk about sexual immorality and the whole list of all sorts of vices in our day and age, Christians do are not a people who are set apart in, in, in the general sense but we tend to walk in the same ways of the world in which we're apart and that that robs the gospel of its power because the real power and testimony of the gospel is your life. what has God done? what how has God made you different from anybody else? Well if Jesus saves but he doesn't bother doing anything else with our lives then then we have no power in our testimony and so uh, in our effort to live under the gospel of grace, we oftentimes live under the gospel of lame excuses. You know, and, and instead of saying, I'm a sinner and owning sin when it is in our life, and then asking God to transform us, uh, we end up not being transformed. We end up not being changed. Peter was obviously very concerned about this happening within the church. And that's why he says in verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, I have written to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want to stimulate you to think biblically. Biblically. And I, I remember speaking at this thing one time for pastors and, and uh, you know, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience because there were three pastors that were invited to speak on this thing about reaching our culture and so forth. And I don't know why they asked me and I don't know uh, how I ended up being the last speaker on the rostrum, which is, you know, you always want to be clean up batter and anything you go to. <laughs> Nobody can contradict you if you're the last guy, right? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the first guy gets up and basically says, well, one of the things we don't do is we don't, don't teach the Bible because people can't understand it. Most people have, have a seventh grade level education and, you know, they just don't understand it. So we don't, we don't go through the Bible. I thought, huh, okay. (laughs) The next guy gets up and says, you know, uh, we don't teach the Bible either. He says, you know, you get in a book of Ezekiel, and it's got a wheel inside of a wheel. And he says, they don't understand what that means. He says, heck, I don't even know what that means. And I thought, really? (laughs) You went to Bible college? Really? (laughs) Anyway, and then there's me. I mean, I just had to say, to begin with, I want to just respectfully disagree (laughs) with these gentlemen we really need to teach the Bible. And and the thing I pointed out to them is that, you know, the the Barna Research Group went out and surveyed Bible-believing, Christ-professing, born-again Christians and asked them what their beliefs were on the eight eight fundamental doctrines of Christianity, things like, you know, salvation by faith alone in Christ, uh, only one way to heaven, heaven, hell, uh, so forth and so on. And they found that only 9% of people who profess to be Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ were doctrinally correct on these eight doctrines, and um, and I said, what we're we're ending, we have a culture that's biblically illiterate. They don't know what the Bible says, and and I said, what what we're lacking in the church is a biblical view of the world. We don't have a biblical worldview. We don't go through life looking at it through the lens of Scripture we end up looking through the lens of whatever happens to be popular at the moment. We have the gospel of Oprah or the gospel of whatever thing is out there. And that's why we interpret the world out there. And it, it was really interesting. Um, and then I left quickly. But, you know, it, it was... But I'm, I'm walking through uh, this store with my wife, actually following my wife through a store because I love shopping. And... um uh, And I run to this gentleman and his wife, and he goes, Hey, were you that guy that spoke? I said, Yeah, that was me. He says, Wow, I'm one of the elders at such and such a church, and so forth and so on. I said, Oh, okay. He says, You know, when you talked about needing to have a biblical worldview, I thought, Wow, what a concept. (laughs) I'm sure the unbelief on my face was evident. But I thought, "Wow, OK, yeah. yeah, that's a good idea." <laughs> it, it really screamed at me how bad it's gotten in this culture. My people perish for lack of knowledge. My people perish for lack of knowledge. So when a man or a woman comes to me and says, "Well, I'm divorcing my wife, and I know it's, the Bible says I shouldn't, but God knows, understands my needs. And I said, oh, he understands them perfectly. (laughs) Do you understand the consequences of that? I mean, do you understand what God says are the consequences of that? And, and, And oftentimes, well, what do you mean? It, it's a sad thing, and I think that uh, it was one of those things that Peter in his prophetic, pro, his prophetic position could look into the future, not just the short term, he could see the long term. He could see what would happen with the church, that our, the people wouldn't know what the Word of God says. They wouldn't have that foundation from which their view of the world was being informed. But they were letting their own imaginations and the culture around them to inform them. And they were making their decisions as a consequence and they were doing it to their own destruction. When Peter and Paul died, I mean, I, Peter must have understood that his, their moderating influence was going to be absent because he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon be put aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And so he wrote them down with great care. Even while Peter and Paul were alive, we find as soon as they would move physically from one area to another to start a new work, there were always... uh, Ambitious men who would swoop in to gain positions of authority and influence. In fact, in Acts 20, Paul spoke about that as he was going to Jerusalem and and, and knowing that nothing good was waiting for him when he got there. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. That they'll literally change the truth in order to make themselves popular in the eyes of men to create a following after themselves. Because, I mean, it's a simple reality. If you teach the Bible literally and from cover to cover, you're going to have huge opportunities over and over again to say things that will offend people. I mean, let's be honest. I read it and I get offended. <laughs> I don't like what God says to me sometimes. You know, I, I just, uh, my, my wife and I were talking about just this afternoon that uh, my mother-in-law, who's really very ill and hospital-bound, and, and my father-in-law was sharing with my wife, says, you know, your, your mom just loves Ken. She, she thinks he's the greatest. I mean, she, she not only can't say anything bad about him, she won't let anybody say anything bad about him. And my wife says, isn't that nice? And I said, well, not only is it nice, but it's extremely true. LAUGHTER <laughs> Uh, yeah, she laughed too. <laughs> but, it's, you know, I mean, I like to hear things that make, I love reading things that really make me, convince me of God's deep love for me because I need that all the time. I'm like you. I have these deep insecurities and identity crisis issues. Okay, so I love reading about the greatness and the depth of God's love for me, but I really struggle when God has a way of bringing me to a passage that just nails me. And I have to sit there and say, God, I am guilty. <laughs> I, I, this, uh, this is my issue. I own it. You know, that's not a fun place to be, but it's also the place where change takes place. Not that you resolve, well, I'm going to be different because that doesn't really work all that well. But when we confess our sins, 1 John 1:9, He's just and He's faithful, not only to forgive us, but to change us. He fixes us. But how does He fix? He fixes us when we are willing to admit that we need fixing. That's what confession is all about. God, I need fixing. Would you please fix me? And He's faithful to do it. Sometimes He does it with a sledgehammer, but that's, you know, (laughs) what you have to have sometimes. But he said, you know, there's going to come in, these guys are going to swoop in, and they're just going to say, let's take away the unfortunate things. I had a pastor one time tell me, he says, well, I, I, I'm teaching through this particular book of the Bible. And I said, wow, that's great. And he says, but I only teach on the things that communicate God's love, the things that don't, I skip. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if I could get away with that. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, how, wait a minute. God's love is seen in His discipline. God's love is seen in His correction. We're told to speak the truth one to another in love. So that if I, Paul, uh, Solomon said in Proverbs, you know, that secret love is a betrayal, essentially. When people say, well, I, I love you and they just tell you what you want to hear, they're not doing you any favors. Now, when somebody comes to you and says, look, I see this thing in your life that you need to deal with, that's never fun, it's never pleasant. It's not pleasant for the one who's doing it, and it's not for the pleasant for the one who's hearing it. But it can be life-saving sometimes. It can be soul-saving when somebody says, I see this thing in you and I'm concerned about it. That person can actually be rescuing you from making a decision or giving place to something in your life that can be terribly destructive. And to just say, well, I don't want to feel awkward, so I'm not going to say anything, is not the expression of love. Love lays itself down, even if in laying itself down, it becomes the doormat for somebody else to wipe their feet. Nonetheless, that's what love does. And so, This whole thing of of speaking the truth is a powerful thing. I mean, what motivated people to do this? Well, Peter tells us this. He said that there was this kind of carnal ambition that created uh, from based upon ignorance and pride and a lack of spiritual maturity, or how he put it in verse 16 of chapter 3. He said, Paul's letter contains some things that are hard to understand, Anybody who has ever studied Paul's letters would go, amen. There are things that are hard to understand. There are complex things that he covers. Uh, a la the book of Romans, which is kind of kicking my hiney down the street every day. But he goes on to say, but ignorant literally means unlearned, untrained, uh, literally not proven. People who have not proven that they have the, the right to expound on the word of God. They're novices, in other words, and, and should not be in a place of authority. Or he says unstable. They have a history of vacillating all over the place. Um, you know, it's like I, I remember reading an article about a guy who had started out as a Presbyterian pastor and then he changed from being a Presbyterian to being a vineyard pastor. And his latest adoration had been he was now a, uh, a, a, a Greek Orthodox priest. And he changed his name. I remember his name was Seraphim Bell, was his new Orthodox name. I can't remember what his previous name was. And, and as he's being interviewed, and the guy's saying, well, how do you go from being a Presbyterian to being a Pentecostal to being Greek Orthodox? I mean, how did you? And he said, well, first thing I want to let you know is I'm not a flake. And I'm thinking to myself, I think you are. <laughs> I mean, nothing personal, but really? You're that... you. You're you're that uncertain. That's vacillating. You're just kind of all over the place. What creates that many times in us, you and me, in a non religious role? It's because we're people pleasers. We tell people what we think they want to hear. And that's what creates the worst kind of vacillation. We go and take a survey and say, What do people want to hear? That's what we'll talk about. And instead of saying, We're just here to declare the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth to the best of our ability because none of us has it down pat. But he goes on to say what they do is they distort Paul's writings as they do with the other scriptures. That word distort is interesting because it means to twist or to wrestle or to wrench or one lexicon said you torture its meaning. (laughs) In other words, you, you take a text and you just keep on twisting it and twisting it and twisting it. It's like... When, when, we, when I did wrestling in school, the idea was to control your opponent to make him submit to your will. And um, it, my brother did that to me. He held me on the ground, and he would let spittle hang down between his mouth, and he would let it get right next to my nose, and he would suck it in, and then he'd go, say uncle. And he'd do that over and over again until he lost his spittle control and usually hit me square in the mouth. Um... But what was he doing? He was trying to terrify me and torment me into submission. Well, that's kind of the idea that Paul's talking about, or Peter's talking about here. They just keep on twisting it until they come up with a meaning that fits into their back pocket and says what they wanted to say. And yet, and you know, a friend of mine put it really well one time. He said the best way to keep the context is when you look at a passage, read the 20, first, 20 verses in front of it, read the 20 verses after it, then you get the context of what he's saying. But if you just take a verse and you pull it out and have it stand on its own, you can, you can spin that thing like a top and make it stand on the head of a needle and make it say whatever you want. And that's the idea, that you're using the Scriptures to manipulate your audience rather than declaring to them what the Scriptures actually say. Um, key verse, I like verse 4 of chapter 1. He has given us... Very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That God has made promises to me of what? That He's going to let me, He's going to enable me to escape the sin that destroyed my life before I knew Him. Not so that I can continue to live in that same bondage that was so destructive before I ever met him. His desire is to bring escape into my life. Which brings me in the last three minutes and 49 seconds to the outline. And and very simply, three chapters, three points. Point number one, I simply term, be consistent. When he says, to make your calling and election sure, verse 5, add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and self-control perseverance, and perseverance godliness, (laughs) And to godliness brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness, love. For he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, in other words, God's intention is for you to grow in your faith, not stagnate in your faith, but to grow in your faith. He says, They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, make your calling and election sure. Not that doesn't mean save yourself. What it means is prove the validity of your faith by the evidence of growing in Christ. How do I know that I know Jesus? Because I grow in Christ. If I see myself in in growing in my faith, uh, then that's, that's evidence that radiates out into the world around me. Because he says, if you do these things you will never fall. Uh, That's why he goes on in verse 15 saying, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of this. But he goes on to say, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. It says more certain than even our testimony. And you will do well to pay attention to it. And he goes on, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that when we read the Scriptures, the idea isn't for me to figure out what it says as much as it is for me to be willing to hear what God says through His Spirit is the truth. That's why I personally believe that reading the Bible without the Holy Spirit in your heart being born again is likely to lead you in some strange places. Because it, it, it really comes alive when the Spirit of God that wrote the Scriptures bears witness with the Spirit of God that's living in your heart. And at that point, no one has to tell you this is God's Word. You have the Spirit giving that testimony in your own heart. But that's why he goes on in chapter 2 and says, but be careful because, as we mentioned, the destructive heresies that would come along. And he describes these heresies as kind of what I'd say a, a libertinism, The idea that you can live in sin and it doesn't have any consequences what you're saved. It's kind of an interesting twisted way of thinking. It's like before I was saved, sin ruined my life and created all sorts of difficulties and problems. I'm the, you know, I've got all these emotional issue problems and relational problems and all this stuff because of sin. But now that I'm saved, God has forgiven me for my sin, but I can still continue to live in them. That's what libertinism talks about. And it it doesn't make sense even to the non-Christian when people say those kind of things. But he says that these men, that they follow corrupt desire of the sinful nature, they despise authority. They resent it if anybody says, that's wrong. They're, They're bold. They're arrogant. These men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. These men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct. Their idea of pleasure is to crowds in broad daylight, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. They mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom while they themselves the slaves of depravity. Of them the proverb is true, he says in verse 22, a dog returns to his vomit, a sow or a pig that is washed goes back to a wallowing in the mud. And when I read that I think to myself what does Peter really think? I mean uh, I have nothing more to add to this commentary. I think he's kind of said it. Uh, But finally the last in chapter 3 he talks about be committed. Uh, the day of the Lord will come. It's interesting because he starts in verse 3 of chapter 3 by saying, first of all you must understand the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say where is this coming he promised? It's interesting how out of fashion teaching on the second coming of Christ has become in the church today. It's not fashionable. It's rare to find churches that actually talk about end times theology, which, you know, uh, is kind of surprising to me, actually. But he says, ever since our fathers died, they go on saying, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the creation. Nothing's changing. Nothing's going to change. So he says, but the scoffers will come. but, But in verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord also will come. It's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So everything that you see around you right now is going to come to a moment where it's going to be reduced to its basic molecular structure and beyond. Everything in the material world is going to evaporate and be gone. So he asked the question, if that's true, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Should you, in other words, should we be people who are investing all of our time, money, and energy uh, in what we can derive from this moment of time that we have on this planet? Or should we be looking beyond our life here and considering where our life really begins, and that's in the eternity with God? Are we going to be people who are defined by time, or are we going to be defined by eternity? That's the choice that every person has, every every Christian has every day of their life. Is today, am I going to define myself by the time that I have here on this planet, or am I going to be defined by eternity? And his whole point is, is obvious. We need to be living as people who are defined by eternity, not simply by time. I'm going to make my decisions today big and small based upon what I know is true when I go home to be with the Lord, not based upon how it may affect me in the here and now. When you begin to approach your life like that, and you know this, I I assume, it begins to have some dramatic impact. You start making decisions differently. And that's part of the reason why many times people don't want to think that way. They don't want to really think about their lives in terms of what's eternity. They just want to live as if they're never going to die. You ever notice that about people? People live like they're going to be here forever, (laughs) And it's like people are always sure. well it was so sudden. You know, he was 96. There's nothing sudden about that. I love my my dear my, my father-in-law, just he's such a dear friend. He said, he said, yeah, somebody came up to me and said, How do you live to be 93? He said, Well, I just wake up every morning. <laughs> and one day I won't. <laughs> I mean That's perspective right there. That's perspective. I know that every day I put my head in the pillow that the chances are that that's the last time I'll put my head in my pillow and wake up. This may be it. Well, that's why he concludes in verse 14 by saying in chapter 3, So then, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Be on your guard so that You may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. Lawless men means they disregard God's ways and fall from your secure position. So next week we get into 1 John. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray that you'd help all of us to hear this message. I pray this especially for myself. You said in your word there's no more dangerous position than to teach others and then not apply it to your own self. Lord, I just pray that you would help me to to listen to my own advice, but I also pray that you would move and work in each of our hearts, Lord, that we would step back and look at our, our time upon this planet and realize it is very brief, it passes very quickly, and then comes eternity, which is forever and ever and ever. Help us, Lord, to learn how to measure our life every day by the eternal consequences of our choices and decisions, and not just simply the temporary ones. We ask this of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Mind standing as we close in worship together?